It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. So, uh, in the the nice space time continuum of how things go when you record, we are recording this episode in advance. We are physically packing the last remnants of everything at the moment. But by the time you hear this, John will no longer be a resident of the state of Texas. And I'm so sad. Yes. Um, yeah. Lots of hugs on Saturday. I know. So, but yeah, we are we're recording this one in advance. So technically, in real world time, we just got finished with our commentary on uh last week's episode for the beekeeper chat we had our commentary on immunizations versus treatment for pests mm -hmm. and this week we are going to talk to everybody about bee centric beekeeping um and yes i do realize that i just just dropped a bombshell out there and i'm going to leave it and we're just going to talk about other stuff and That's i will right. explain the other stuff later <laughs> and you managed to make me uh yeah i'm just kind of uh gonna i'd like to change the subject because this is a really sad subject for me so <laughs> um, okay so now on on a flip side of that uh natalie and les actually are taking over my main apiary and mm -hmm. the what was it like 20 20 some odd hives that were out there at that location yes. um so they are in very good hands it's and, a great uh, apiary and we're thrilled to, to be uh continuing your your good work out there. yeah i am i am super thrilled that they're going to be in good hands and and that's uh it's a great location that's where my favorite honey has ever come from out there and they seem to do great and thrive so definitely looking forward to hearing how that all goes mm -hmm. but from a different perspective on beekeeping, the whole concept of bee-centric beekeeping and be mindful and Natalie and Les and a lot of the things that they do are very much in line with bee-centric. And mm -hmm. then also a lot of stuff from Dr. Thomas Seeley mm -hmm. is in line with bee-centric. And what that in means and like the, the highest level overview of the definition is what is it that the bees themselves are specifically looking for? What is the closest thing to natural that the bees would actually seek out or do? That's kind of the, the high overarching bee-centric concept. So if you look at Thomas Seeley and you look at when he was doing research on swarm traps, a lot of bee-centric thinking has to go into that because he was doing experiments to see how high versus how low they prefer a potential nest cavity to be how okay. large or how small mm -hmm. the opening size the mm -hmm. shape you know things along these lines internal volume of the cavity humidity and moisture and and air penetration and light penetration like all these different things go into play with bee centric type concepts and the whole point of it is being able to find out and understand what they prefer in nature and what makes the most sense for them in a natural environment, and then being able to turn around and apply that to your own beekeeping practices to try to keep the bees in a bee-centric manner that's going to be hopefully more healthy and natural to them than some of the uh, crazy bizarre things that we as humans come up with that we think they should adapt to. Um, mm -hmm. This is also the same concept as 
and I've told the story many a times, but uh, the whole concept of, well, I bought a flow hive and I've had it out there for six months and I still haven't had a single bee move in. What am I doing wrong? Or no. I've got bees. This is a favorite one for removals. I get those removals all the time. I've got bees that are living in this tree or they're living in this house. And I bought a Langstroth box and I'm going to set it right there in front of them. So they're going to just leave they're and move into in. that. Right. Yep. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, why would you think that? Well, it's a beehive. And I'm like, right. It's not a birdhouse. It's not like the bees didn't choose that man made that man chose that. And they're never going to give up a place that they have chosen that they love because there's very specific reasons they chose it and they're established. So best case scenario, they may send out a swarm and that reproductive split and swarm may choose to live in that container, but the bees that are still in the tree or the wall are still going to be in the tree or the wall. You're not solving anything. Um, so yeah, so bee centric can go into a lot of different concepts and ideas. And I thought that it would be kind of an interesting little conversation to have, especially with Natalie, who, who is very, very much into that concept of beekeeping. You know, I mean, be mindful. It's kind of all mm -hmm. in the name. <laughs> so. it, it, there's so many reasons we chose that name. <laughs> it works for so many things. Yes, it does. So yeah, basically that's our passion. Absolutely our passion to work with the bees uh, and, and not working against them to kind of the core of that is to really understand the superorganism and everything that happens in the hive. And before I forget, I wanted to mention there's a book that is super important. If you want to become a big, better beekeeper and by understanding better the superorganism um, and, and the biology of the honeybee by Winston to me is yes. a Bible for beekeeping because it's not written from the perspective of beekeeping at right. all. It's There's no ulterior motive. about just right. bees and what the bees do and seek and need. And, and it's not looking at exploiting the animal. The animal is not looking at um, uh, doing anything uh, for ourselves, for pollination or anything. It's not looking to increase production of anything. It's just telling you this is what the bees do, and it does it in so many details and in and, and such an educative way that it's really making you understand what it is that makes the bees tick. And I think that once you understand how the bees work, both from um, practice, like it's super important to be in the beehives and to spend time with those bees and they get a lot of time, uh, frame time, like I call it, being able to go through a lot of colonies over time and, and just kind of be able to observe for yourself and get your instinct uh, about what it is that they do and why they do it. But if you read that book, I guarantee you that you're going to really jumpstart your learning and reinforce your practice uh, with a whole lot more in-depth understanding of the bees and what they do, what they do, so that you can leverage that in turn uh, and really um, uh, use what you know to inform how you keep your bees. What, you, what we always tell people is, is that um, you want to work with the bees, you want to dance with the bees, like Les says. Yes. And if you try to impose your will and make them do things that they're not uh, at the right time for, or they're not in the right mode for, or that's not good for them, you will fail more often than you will succeed for sure. Yeah, right? you're setting you cannot... yourself up for failure. You're setting them mm -hmm. up for failure. It's yeah. it's the concept of swimming upstream or going against, against the, the grain. Current. You're, That's right. You're it's going to be a constant battle and uphill challenge the entire time. Mm -hmm. But if you learn their natural ebb and flow and you work with their natural ebb and flow, everything goes so much easier and smoother mm -hmm. because you can see 
or you know, like at this point in time, based on the signals and the signs that the colony is giving me, I now know that they need X, Y, Z. And this is the perfect time to do it. If you're trying mm -hmm. to get them to draw out more comb or expand and grow, but it's the wrong time of the season, they don't have enough young bees, they don't have enough sugar, like no matter what you do, it's never going to equate to they're going to draw out more wax because it's right. just not the natural time for them to do that. So that's mm -hmm. one very good aspect of it. And if you uh, try to rear queens when there's no nectar flow, you're really, really swimming against the Or when the there's birds. no drones. That's and when another, there's no drones. Yeah, that's another thing too. And people are like, oh, well, you know, you can just raise queens earlier. Well, yes, you can. They can raise queens at any point in time during the year. They, it is physically possible. But if those queens don't have any drones to go mate with, it's pointless. <laughs> so what you have to be careful of is that you get a lot of information out there. A lot of it is on Facebook, YouTube, all those people that are actually getting their information from commercial beekeepers that are doing things for a different purpose. Yes. They're, they're actually, they have goals that are completely different from that of backyard beekeepers. They cannot afford to do things the way backyard beekeepers beekeepers can and one of the examples i like to talk about excuse me is feeding pollen and especially those uh, soft sugar bricks um, at a time that is not meant for the bees it's never a good time to force them to rear brood right basically the bees should follow the webs uh, of the ebbs and flows of local cycles of, of weather and forage because that's how they can better plan ahead and better uh, and answer the needs that they have themselves, right? If we're throwing their pollen thinking we're going to give them better nutrition, we're actually uh, forcing the queen to rear more brood at a time when it might not be a good thing. My favorite example is if you're doing it early in the spring for uh, the purpose of getting a whole lot of bees before the nectar flow hits, so you get more honey production or in the case of commercial beekeepers, so that you can go take them to pollination contracts pollination services, at a time yeah. that's way earlier in the season that the bees would nat naturally kind of expand. Um, when the, the, the commercial beekeepers do it, they do it for a reason. They have a specific goal. They have a specific process that they go through. Yeah. And it kind you of- You know what like, it looks like? It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's typically green. It's kind of shaped like an S and it's got a couple of lines that go down through it. Um, I think yes. a dollar sign. Well, um, I'm trying to not <laughs> be as critical about commercial beekeeping because it has uh, some purpose for us to eat. Oh, it, and, it totally, and it totally does. Some, yeah, but, but you but still have is, to acknowledge the fact that it is driven it by is. profit. It is a business, and mm -hmm. it it follows the business's calendar and schedule and the demand right. of the population of Absolutely. humans. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the natural cycle of the bees themselves that are, and that's why they've run into problems, right? Because the bees get sick, they get diseased. There's all kinds of things that happen. There's a lot of uh, winter losses. The backyard beekeepers, some of them, especially as they grow a little bit bigger, they also probably want to maximize their honey production, potentially sell it, potentially sell bees, so that they can at least pay for their addiction, which is my case. <laughs> but I depending think on how addicted you are. I'm it very still takes I'm a, a, lot, a lot more and more and more to continue paying for that addiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not if you do it right and you get to keep your bees alive, right? That's true. So uh, if you're not replacing you, 40 to 50% of them every year because they die. That's and, right. Yeah. And if you are doing it in a way that you're not exploiting the bees as widgets, the colonies as widgets that are there to make you um, profit, you know, a it's cog, not a cog in the yeah, wheel. A of cog a big in the machine. wheel. Yeah. Uh, but if you do it in a way that you're leveraging more the knowledge that you have and the services that you can offer, you're not exploiting them as much. You're still being successful. You can still make actually 
I think, a lot more money without as much effort. It's a huge amount of work to be a commercial beekeeper, right? It is. It absolutely is. So I and totally it's a, respect it's a that. Lot of, there's a lot of costs that go into it, too, that outside of the commercial aspect would not be associated with beekeeping. That's right. But when you put in, I'm traveling across multiple states, now you've got intra and interstate permits. You've right. got the fuel to get them there. You've got the time for the driver to get there. You have mm -hmm. room and board and food for the driver to get there. And that's none of that would be in a normal beekeeping situation where your bees are not being carted yeah. around and moved around. So right. they have to then compensate for all of that by having yeah. insane amounts of colonies to be able that's to get payback on those contracts and be able to cover them. So that's, that's a huge I'm thing. I'm in awe of the amount of work that the commercial beekeepers do. It's an insane amount of work. It's hard work. And it's, I mean, I totally respect that because I mean, kudos, uh, chapeau, like we say, I tip my that's hat awesome. off to yeah. them uh, because I wouldn't want to do that. That's no. too much work. I, I cannot do that kind of work. It's super hard and it's very risky financially as well. Right. So let's, so, let's look at, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to finish my thought. The, uh, the, the, if you feed sugar, soft sugar breaks or, or pollen, uh, that way you're force feeding them the pollen because they're looking for the carbohydrates. They eat that, they get broody. First, your queen doesn't get any break. There's not, as, uh, there's not brood breaks because you don't want the brood break. You want more and more and more and more bees. Um, and that means that actually increases your chances of having mite infestations because with a brood break comes a, a sanitary cycle of cleaning off all the mites from the cat cells. And also you can run the risk of having that brood up at a time that's highly um, uh, not good for the bees. For example, if it's early in the spring, you can run into a problem of them swarming prematurely. Yep. And then you've got your mated queen that leaves and she, they're rearing another queen, a virgin queen, at a time when there's the least amount there's of possible of drones. Yeah, if any. <laughs> if any, you can also increase your load of pests. I talked about the mites, but there's also uh, potentially some issues with uh, small hive beetles because there's some of that pollen patties or whatever that you get in there. Yeah, and the you small hive beetles will overwinter with your colony. So they're they already will. in there. They, they, they've stayed nice and toasty with the cluster all winter. Yeah. And when they get the cluster gets contracted, they have a little bit more leeway to get to those unprotected resources as well. So there's something to keep in mind. But um, the the other aspect of things, and I'm losing my track of. <laughs> well, so thoughts. so your 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 whole concept there is like what in this first aspect, what you're circumventing in the natural ebb and flow of it is the rest cycle and the rest period. The the colony yes. is has evolved to contract and condense mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. and go through this period of rest because it has worked so hard over those spring months. And then again, in the fall to prepare mm -hmm. for winter, they're supposed to have a break and they're supposed to go through and kind of calm Cleansing. down, mm -hmm. but they're also following the natural flow of the environment around them. There is mm -hmm. no food out there and there's no point for them to be out there. So they have also, you know, cut back on all their energy expenses that they would be doing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start feeding them pollen and you start feeding them sugar, they don't necessarily understand that there's no food outside of their house, but mm -hmm. you've given them this incoming food source. They start building up, they start brooding up, they start rearing all these mouths that have to be fed. And if you slack off on that, once you start, they there's starve. still nothing growing and they're going to starve <laughs> to death very quickly because I'm not laughing. all those babies, they have to eat and they have to like, they have to do it. And if they can't, now everything goes to just literally hell in a handbasket. Well, and they're you trying to up, keep them warm right. in the spring, right? A cold exactly. spell and there's, you got chill everywhere. 
Right. Well, there, the other part too, that a lot of people don't understand for us down here, one of the reasons that like that winter storm was so detrimental to us, but it didn't affect beehives in places like Chicago, for instance, you know, every year we made a joke in the very first season of the show, Chicago, we changed its name to uh, Chiberia. <laughs> Chiberia. <laughs> so you end up with these situations where they're always cold. It's always bitter cold out there. And they've been left with all the food they need for the entire year. Those bees are not even thinking about brooding up and the temperature really didn't change. So it didn't impact them because they stayed in their cluster and they kept doing what they were doing. But for us, that's not the case. We start having these warmer periods in January. We can have random days up at 80 degrees and the bees, if you start feeding them, they're like, woohoo, spring's here. The sun's out. It's warm. It's beautiful. There's sugar coming from somewhere. There's this pollen that they're bringing down here to us and they start brooding up. And then all of a sudden, middle to late February hits, we drop back down into the twenties. There was no actual food available for them. They've got three times the population that they should have had at that point, And they all need fed plus all the babies. And then you end up, like you said, worst case scenario, chill brood, lots of those babies die or they all die because they either starve or freeze or a combination of the two. So there's always unintended consequences and prices to pay when it comes to this. But mostly what I want people to remember is that whenever you try to impose your will and your own um, agenda on the bees, if you do it without taking into account the, the, the way the bees work and the superorganism works, uh, then you end up having trouble because that's going to not work out the way you want to. There's ways where you can just by understanding and being able to read uh, the behavior of the bees by taking into account what's happening around in the environment, where you are in the cycle um, and how, what kind of bees you're keeping, the genetics and, and all this and how they've been doing before. You can still leverage that if you understand all this properly to, to actually turn uh, profits if that's what you're looking for or maximize your honey production if that's what you're looking for. But by doing it and understanding the superorganism and how it works, then you can do it in a way that's sustainable and, and that's actually going to be long-term much more beneficial to you even um, because your bees are going to be healthier. They're going to live longer. They're going to produce more in the end. And so I always say less is more. Get right. It? Yeah. Less, less, less Crowder. Less Crowder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of the other things about bee-centric beekeeping and keeping things in mind for the bees. So I often say like a Langstroth beehive is still a man-made hive. And mm -hmm. really the only consideration that was given to the bees in a Langstroth colony is the concept of bee space. Bee space. And that's it. The rest of it was for man to make it easier on us to be able to mm -hmm. harvest without killing the colony, saving the resources of the comb and being able to reuse it and put it back into place. That's right. But the only thing for the bees was the bee space. Now, no. from I a was going to say some, some can argue that it's also the, the shape of the vertical trunk of the colony. Of like a stuff. tree. That is true, uh, but we do uh, it backwards though. Well, and I would argument, I would, uh, I would say that in, uh, from what I've heard from my removal ex uh, friends, and you can maybe confirm or infirm, is the majority of the choices that the bees make is for horizontal configuration. A lot of, of times, vertical. yeah, a lot of times they, they, they start off and they grow. And that's, that's something that I've actually talked about a lot too, is people will say, oh, but the colonies grow they say they grow up because that's what they think they do because they keep putting boxes on top of them, but they you're invalidating up. their bee space Ever. 
So they go up in there to be like, what the hell? And they try to fix it. But in reality, they start at the top of a cavity. Mm -hmm. The very first comb is built and that comb goes down Down. and out until Mm -hmm. it reaches the containment field that it's in. Mm -hmm. The next comb goes over beside it. They will continue to expand outward Mm -hmm. until they hit a barrier, just like they continue to grow the combs downward until they hit a barrier. So they will expand long ways and they're in fallen logs and trees. They're in the sides of houses. There's lots of different scenarios where they run long ways Mm -hmm. in nature that they chose on their own accord versus in the, the natural chimney type shape of stuff. And you can say, yes, it is truly designed to mimic that. But in reality, we're still invalidating it because the wood that they're in is barely three quarters of an inch thick. It's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as a minimum three to four inch thickness of a tree trunk. That's going to provide way more insulative value to them. And in the tree, nobody's adding extra space above them. They've started at the top of that cavity and they're just building down. So if you wanted to build a true war, a type style hive that was made out of thick lumber and actually had a crane and a winch to pick that sucker up. You could put boxes below it doing the, the nadiring or under supering. That would be the closest to mimicking a quote unquote tree in nature. Right. But one of the things that is very, very beneficial, you can do it on the Langstroth, but it's naturally done in a top bar or even in a war because there yeah. is no foundation is mm-hmm. natural comb building and natural cell size of their choosing and their placement because right. they know I need this many drone cells. I need this many, this, and I need them located in these positions and a Langstroth or any type of frame that has a pre-printed foundation Thank is you. forcing them into a cell size that we have chosen not that the bees have chosen. And they've manipulated that cell size for various purposes, again, that had nothing to do with the bees. It was man thinking, well- Maximize honey production. If one plus one equals two, then two plus 12 equals 90. You know, they just, they, <laughs> they make these huge leaps and thought and stuff. But natural cell size, that consideration is another part of bee-centric beekeeping. Going through and making sure that the bees are choosing the sizes that they need. And Les has talked many times about how, you know, there isn't actually one consistent size. You'll find some bigger cells in other places and smaller cells where seams are, where they fused it together. And um, watching the bees also build a comb is fascinating because sometimes they'll start two separate combs. This one will be drone comb. This one will be worker. (laughs) They'll grow them and then they'll fuse them together into a perfect solid comb that you would have never known started as two Mm -hmm. or three or four little pieces. And then, you know, as you look through there and you get better at your beekeeping, you can identify where these seams are and, oh, this is all drone brood and this is all worker brood cells. Um, but people like, they need the drones. But at the same time, if you're, if you're freaking out because you're like, oh, but I got all this drone comb, we should get rid of that. Drone comb holds way more than more worker honey. cells. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, they're going to use it to raise boys, but they need those boys. They serve a purpose for the function for mm-hmm. the colony. A healthy colony has them. And then once they're done, they are obviously more than capable of saying, we don't need you anymore. And they get rid of the boys and then all that turns into storage space and mm-hmm. they will utilize it for what they need when they need it to. So that is another big consideration on B-centric, natural cell and natural comb building by the bees themselves. Right. And I, I would go even further than the natural cell sizes um, being smaller, much smaller than that 5.4 millimeter that you find on the foundation. And even in the uh, small cell, um, the bees tend to build those much smaller. What that does is that their developmental cycles are shorter. 
they are uh, sometimes emerging from their capsules within one or two days from they would otherwise on a um, uh, foundation. And what that does is that it really greatly reduces the amount of time available for the mite foundress to make viable offspring, mated females that would come out with her. Yep. So instead of having three or four that come out with her, you, you get one, two, one and a yeah. half, and that's it, right? Yep. So one and a half doesn't count, right? So, but you might have two in some cases, right? <laughs> and, and I love so, that. That's like the 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 national national averages of families. Yes. <laughs> two adults and 1.5 kids. I'm like, oh my God, what happened to the other half of that kid? <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's something that's been uh, proven. And that's where that knowledge that I was talking about earlier is important as well. With that book, you can kind of tell some of these cycles and things. But the other thing I would say about foundation is that it really is bringing in, it brings in uh, structural rigidity uh, and, and, and therefore the vibrations that they use to communicate between each other are greatly muffled. So we don't think about that because we don't care because all we care about is the honey. But but in the end, it's really, I think, harming the colony because their communication messages are not as efficient. They're not as able to tell each other where the food is and what's going on in the colony. And we're dampening those communication pathways when we're using something that's rigid within the wax. Yes, it makes it a lot easier for the beekeeper to manipulate carelessly the, the frames and to put them in extractors. However, it's not, uh, it's, it's, do, it's counter to what the bees do, but it's also um, probably harming the way they conduct business. So, yeah. you know, there's that Some... to be taken into account as well some uh some definite good like all of that just came from one simple concept and mm -hmm. say you are a langstroth beekeeper and you do have foundations in your frames mm -hmm. and you want to try to to see what this is like otherwise pop the foundation out that's right just pop it out of there they will build the comb you will be amazed it'll look like it's got foundation in it they'll build it within the confines of that actual wooden faster. frame mm -hmm. they'll hook it together and yes faster because in nature they build it you can't see me if you're just listening to this, but I'm making <laughs> funny gestures on in, in the video. Uh, they build it actually both sides at the same time because it's yeah. got a very sharp seam and they're mm -hmm. always pulling and drawing from that seam. So they're building both sides of it at the same time, not one side and then the other. So yes. they can work together and actually have this collaborative effort to go through and get this all accomplished. It um, disrupts their, their, their processes yes. greatly. Yeah. And so do the, the different sizes of frames too, because mm -hmm they get started and then they've got to stop and they've got to move to this other one. They got to start again. So there's mm -hmm. lots of coordination and, and road bumps in there that kind of get messed up. But so that's one way that you can try that yourself if you want to. And you, if you've still got the frame, the only thing you need to be mindful of is yeah. the fact that now you don't have a foundation in there. You could potentially run wire in it if you planned on extracting it out and you I didn't want it to blow apart. Wires. I can't either. I end up cutting them and get, ripping them oh, out of yeah. there, but just keep in mind, you've got something that is not as sturdy as what you've been used to with a solid core foundation mm -hmm. to it. So be careful tilting it and leaning it and things like that. And, and you can do it in an extractor, but you need to start off slower and you need to exactly. gradually increase that speed mm -hmm. and don't get too carried away. Right. Maybe you let the extractor run for 10 minutes instead of five minutes on 100%, mm -hmm. you know. Um, or you can do cut comb, which, by the way, is a lot awesome. twice as expensive uh, when you buy it as you would uh, buy honey. We and were just talking work. about earlier, there's one lady in Texas, uh, and that's probably gonna be me soon, but anyway, there's one lady in Texas, she sells a Ross round of comb honey for $45. Yeah. So if you're I in it for the money, 
fell over when I heard that. And but, she sells out every time. So there yeah. you go. If you're looking for money, cut comb is the way or Ross combs or whatever. Comb well, honey is well, let's let's think about the the concept of that too, though. I mean, I, this is derailed from B centric oh, yes. aspect of yeah, it. Because but it's not <laughs> if you have if you have a frame and it's in a top box and they just drew out that comb this year it's beautiful white virgin wax the queen has never went up there and laid in it mm -hmm. and you can take that and uh, one of the ways you can cheat by the way is you pick up that frame and hold it up to the sun and if everything is a uniform color and the light is shining through it then it's they There's haven't ever done anything to it pupate. but if you can see dark sections in there and everything else is light they have had brood in those sections and you might want to omit that part mainly because when they go through and they do the pupation cycle and they emerge out that chrysalis and cocoon is still in there mm -hmm. and then they propolize and wax over it and it makes it a little bit chewier and tougher mm -hmm. and it's just not the taste century aspect mm -hmm. of it you know mm -hmm. so they you go through and you have this comb up there if you were going to extract it you got to go through the process of uncapping it and you got to put oh it into gosh. the extractor you got to spin it work. you have to then clean the extractor then it goes into the settling tank and you have to skim off the top and you got to open it up and fill up your jars blah 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 blah. or you just take it and you lay it down you and you it. very gently cut it with a very sharp one knife. knife you let it one board yeah you you <laughs> let it let the cells that you opened up finish draining off take it and put it into a container and sell it and you're done. You didn't have to do any of the yes. other stuff. You clean up a cutting board, <laughs> not it. an extractor, not so all this easier. other stuff. So it's less work. It's less time consuming. It's less mess and it's more money and more profitable. Exactly. Both because so, you're making more money and you're saving time on your own. So I would say work smart, not hard. Is yes. kind of what I always like Kiss. to tell my students. Keep it simple, yes, stupid. Keep it simple. <laughs> so yeah, work smart. So that's the that's the kind of the concept with the cell size. Um, let's see. One of the other things is like entrance sizes. Mm -hmm. So in nature, the bees Absolutely. purposefully choose entrances that are smaller because they are easier to guard. Now, there are many, many, many instances. And yes, I do removals all the time. So I can come up with just as many counters to this as all the rest of you. Mm -hmm. But yeah. They'll move into an owl box and the stupid opening is like six inches across or yeah, they'll move into the hollow. Yeah, they'll, they'll move into the hollow of a tree and it'll be mm -hmm. giant. Why did they do that? Because out of all of the options, that was the best one. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean it was perfect. It means all the other ones were worse than that. Mm -hmm. So they chose that one and then they fixed it. And how did they fix it? Like you just said, propolis and wax. And they mm -hmm. create this giant leathery covering across the front. And guess what they leave open? three or yes. four teeny tiny little holes that are literally just big enough for one bee to come and go out of that hole at a time. Mm -hmm. That's how they reduce that down to a smaller size that they would prefer. Keep out the water, keep out the light, keep out the airflow, and they can control everything better. So keeping that in mind, if you looked at a Langstroth colony, the entire front of that sucker is open. Now, yes, they do come with entrance reducers and yes, you should use them, but you also hear lots of things about how, oh, but when the nectar flow is really high, you need to remove that so that they can get in and out and, and they need that airflow in there. No, they don't. No. When I started building top bar hives, I gave them two entrances, one in the, like, if you're looking at the long side of the hive, I had one in the front lower left corner, one directly in the middle. Those were their two entrances. And then on the back, I gave them two smaller vents that were screened off, one above and directly opposite the entrance in the middle, and then one above and opposite of the other entrance on the right-hand side. And you know what, what they would they do? do? They propolize <laughs> them closed. 
They closed them all off every time to the point I stopped building them that way because there was no point in me spending the time of boring this hole in there and trying to get it all nice and smooth and putting the screen on it. If they're just going to propolize over it and leave it, they didn't need that ventilation. They didn't want it. So they fixed it just like they do those tree cavities. So following the bees and, and also that's a great example right there. I learned by following the bees. Exactly. I saw how they were modifying my design Pay and attention. then I modified my design to fit what they were trying to correct. Pay attention because what you're doing, if you're not paying attention, you're giving yourself a lot more work, but you're also giving the bees a lot more work. Like it could be doing something else right. with their time. Those resources right? are valuable. They could be using mm -hmm. that on something else. They could use their time on something else, like making honey, raising brood, you know, whatever it might be. They don't have to focus on fixing your flubs. <laughs> because of the brilliant ideas of how we thought it should be. <laughs> I would go even further and would say that being bee centric is also being a little bit more humble about the whole thing, right? We think we know better than the bees. We think that we can help them by doing things that make sense to us when it's a, it's a, it's a super organism that doesn't function like we do. There's not, you know, they're not humans. They're not looking for air conditioning. They're not hot when it's hot outside necessarily. They're not necessarily cold when it's cold outside. You don't have to put like a whole blanket around or whatever. Uh, in some cases, when it's extreme, maybe you can help them out and you can keep bees in areas that you would not be able to keep them in otherwise. Right. And that's how usually that happens. But, but also if, on like that blanket aspect, mm -hmm. why are you doing that? Because yeah. you put them in something they would have never lived in to begin That's with. That exactly was way right. thinner than the things mm -hmm. they would have chosen on their own. And therefore it needs the extra insulative value because That's of right. your design flaws, not because the bees need it exactly. evolutionarily. It's a combination of putting bees where they shouldn't be and having boxes that are not adapted to the way they do things. And it's basically exposing them to the elements. So that, those are the things that we look at when we talk about bee-centric, being a little bit more humble and not as, you know, uh, just kind of learn from the bees. And right. if you're observant and if you pay attention, they're going to show you what works for them and you're going to have much less work to do because of it. Right. right? You're not going to be guidance. fighting them. Mm -hmm. Emulate them instead, of, instead yes. of trying to herd them into the direction you want them to go. Right. So on the, uh, on the concept of like, you know, the bees know best kind of thing and being humble, do you bees realize? Know the best, I would say, I would say, just be careful with that because sometimes they end up putting themselves in situations oh, that yeah, are not the best for them. They're but not, they're just like people. They're else, not infallible. Yeah. They yeah, yeah, do yeah. make some, some questionable decisions. Like for, Absolutely. for instance, <laughs> if you wanted to put logic into it, you remove bees from a house or you like, like they're up in the, the ceiling where they've made the comb and it gets too hot. And there's evidence that every year the comb melts the and comb falls, melts. Yes. but yet another colony still moves in there and yeah. tries to repopulate it because it smells like bees and has the pheromones. Yeah. The logical thought process that's missing there is, well, it may have that, but why aren't they still there? If it was a great right. place, exactly. why aren't they still there? You know, so they are missing some little logical things there, but they're not perfect. Their, to their benefit and to their credit, though, they know down to a molecular level, I am short in this specific amino acid, mm -hmm. this one amino acid. And they can then communicate that with their foragers and have their foragers go out and mm -hmm. seek out sources that are rich in that one amino acid. Right. I cannot do that. I cannot pretend to do that. They're I have fast. no idea. They do. 
That's one of the reasons also why natural pollen is always better. And usually if you do a pollen substitute type thing, it's, it is a bunch of protein things that are trying to emulate the natural pollen, but it does not contain the natural enzymes and the other things, the prebiotics, probiotics that would be found on that living flower pollen. So you're missing that right off the bat, but it is also a consistent level of things. Whereas the stuff they get out of nature is a varying level of things and they can tweak it to what they need and what they desire. And I can't do that. You can't do that. Most people can't, can't. the scientists can't even do that because they're still reformulating all their stuff. So, and there's evidence that those uh, man-made supplements are actually detrimental to the colonies. And and so if you're going to do any kind of pollen supplementation, keeping in mind that you might be throwing them off in their cycles, uh, you could, you should, I think, uh, use um, natural pollen. Yeah, if you can harvest it, freeze dry it or freeze it, store it. And then when they need it, feed the real thing back to them is far, far better than, you know, any man-made thing that we do that's going to be lacking and all this other stuff. So that's kind of true all the way across the board, but those are. I interrupted you earlier. You were, you were going to say something that sounded like it was super important. It probably was like freaking revolutionary, like answers to the universe. And um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, It it had to do like, it it kind of went in, in line with where I ended up going anyway with okay. some of that. Um, oh, it was it, actually, it was the pollen. It was the pollen part at the end. Oh, good. Um, because I, that's what I was going to get back to is that, yeah, they're not necessarily as intuitive, as intelligent as we are, but for an insect in certain areas, they're far more intelligent than we are mm-hmm. because they have a, a more refined set of receptors to view the world with. They can break those things down to that molecular level. They can mm-hmm. identify different substances that we, we can't. We just mm-hmm. know if I eat this piece of broccoli, it's got good stuff in it and it's supposed to be good for me. Right. But, well, okay, I will take that back. Not from a conscious level, but there are instances of people that have been like on shipwrecks and they're out on life rafts and things like that. And they start going into starvation. They mm-hmm. start having cravings that they cannot identify for really bizarre things. And there was some stories about... Actually, I think it was one of the books that we actually had to read in school when I was like in middle school about how this one gentleman like caught the fish, but the only thing he would do is he was eating their eyes and it it was not anything that he would have ever done normally. And he wasn't like drawn to want to eat the rest. He was eating their eyes and come to find out his body was desperately deficient in a specific thing that was only found in that fish's eyes. But he didn't know that. He was just following the instincts of his body saying, I need something. And that looks like it's got what I need. Right. Um, but the bees can actually go through and they can identify these things and they do it knowingly and they communicate it with their sisters and send them out to go find these things yeah. at the times that they actually need them. When you force feed them something and you mm-hmm. give them like a pollen patty inside their colony, there's a, there's a few different things to this. And this kind of goes back. We've got a bonus episode that will be coming out here. Eventually it's one of the older ones, but most people on the main segments haven't got to hear it, but it's the one I think titled going bananas. And it talked about like a year ago, the people that were putting bananas inside their hives because, Oh, the potassium and all this other stuff. And it helps with chalk brood and it helps with blah, 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 blah. And there's lots of arguments that go into the fact with, well, if your hive is hygienic and you put something in there, that's a foreign substance that they don't want, it's going to kick the hygienic behavior into overload. 
they're going to clean it out. But at the process, they're going to scour the whole hive and clean everything else out, which probably is why the chalk brood got cleaned out of there. Right. Um, but the banana at the same time is the same concept as your pollen patty. You put it in there and then it's say it's you're lucky enough that it's gone later. But do you honestly know that they really consumed it or did they just break it apart, carry it out the hive and fly off with it and drop it on the ground because it ain't supposed yeah. to be in there, you know? Well, and you might empirically think that they've got more brood production or whatever, but what are the unintended consequences again of them absorbing a foreign substance that they do not forage on naturally? Right. It right. could be deficient in very specific things that, that your colony is different than the next colony beside it. And it's way different than the colony that your friend has down the road, just like we're different from each other and the needs of our bodies and things like that. And, you know, at, at different points in times, we all need different things for different reasons. And the colony is the same way. So be centric. Like if it comes to pollen, the only time I will feed it is in a powdered substance mm -hmm. that is external from the hives. Because then if they deem that there is something in there they need and they want to go forage for it and get it, to do that. they yes. can do it. But I'm not forcing it into their colony. If it goes in there, it's because they chose to take it in there. Because again, just like searching for that hive, it was the best scenario out of all the options they found at that right. time. And so therefore they took it. And trust me, when they don't need it, they won't they touch won't it. Take it. <laughs> and then also, uh, you know, to be pragmatic, you're doing things, you're, you're using bees for, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, ag valuations, you're doing some things with the bees, you're maybe potentially selling some of the bees. So you actually, there's a little bit, you're, you're kind of tap dancing that line where you kind of give them a nudge Right. Uh, so that they can. I've, I've pre-sold, you, you right. know, like hypothetically X amount of nukes this year. Yeah. And therefore I need to do X amount of splits, but to do that, the colonies need to be strong. So I've got to manipulate them. But, but what is that so bottom why. line that we're right. working towards is a dollar sign, Again, not right. the bee centric aspect of right. what the bees needed. I was manipulating them to accomplish something I needed. The bees don't need our, us to feed them. They nope. really don't. They were there hundreds of millions of years, a hundred million years ago uh, before we were there. They will be there way longer than we will be if we don't manage to poison them to death. Uh, <laughs> and ourselves and, in the process. <laughs> and ourselves in the process. And But they do not human beings to help them by feeding them. They right. are perfectly capable and it's much better for them if they feed themselves. And again, with the carrying capacity that we were, had... Uh, that we talked about last time yeah yeah we if we have colonies that don't have enough food that are obviously malnourished or are not doing well that's because there's not enough forage in the area so if right. you're being bee centric you just kind of reduce them you let them reduce those numbers down there's right. no need to be feeding them so that you can have more colonies that's not bee centric that's for you right right so intensity and in colonies in an area in bee centric that's also a great another little side point so on the back part of my main apiary, you notice there's over 50 yards between mm -hmm. most of the colonies. Yes. You might have one or two colonies side by side. And sometimes that arises from the fact that there's one legitimate colony and then one swarm box. And then eventually mm -hmm. somebody moves into it and I just haven't moved them. It's there. But you, yeah. yeah. You've got the colony and then like 50 plus yards down the line, you've got another colony and then another 50 plus yards, you've got another colony because in nature, colonies purposefully disperse themselves out and they don't choose places that are overly populated when they have the options because mm -hmm. it's better for them. There's less competition for forage, those mm -hmm. natural resources. 
And it's better also from the standpoint of diseases because mm -hmm. you don't have drift. You don't have bees accidentally going into the wrong colony that's right beside it. When that happens, they then carry parasites with them like the mites. Um, if they have a horrible disease like American fowl brood, they carry that with them into that colony. So by having them further spread out to where that bee is only going over there to go home and there's no confusion, you also eliminate a lot of these other things that are really exasperated by beekeeping practices, but wouldn't happen in nature because there would be a bee in this tree. Much more space. And then the next one may be way down the block kind of thing. You know, they're not typically all right there, but again, to everything in beekeeping, like I, that whole presentation, I've got the whole presentation on the contradictions of beekeeping, yes. um, that, you know, there there's contradictions to that too. I have gone to a house and done six removals out of one house over the course of three days because there were bees in like every corner of the house but the house was the only thing out there for them to move well, into. That's what I was going to say is that and the fact that um, there's they smell like a colony as well. Yep. And then some colonies actually get desperate enough that they will go and move into whatever they can find. Yeah. And it might not the always be best the best. Yeah. yeah, it might not always be the best choice, but they'll, they'll do it anyway. That's right. Do you have any other uh, parting thoughts on this one? We could actually, for be centric, we could probably go on forever, but for sake of everybody's time, <laughs> we will, <laughs> we will not do that. We can always uh, come up with a following, a follow up of uh, this topic. If we get questions, I That's mean, true. we always want to get the questions that you may have regarding all these topics that we talk about. And some of them will trigger a new episode where you're going to get more information. So don't hesitate to send those. Those yeah. questions. At the at the very least, it's something that we can touch on and we can do it here so that everybody can actually learn and, and share in that experience. Um, sometimes it, it may turn into a, a whole other thing. Who knows? That's right. But yeah, definitely don't uh, don't hesitate to do that. So you can reach us in many, many different ways. So obviously the, the Hive Jive itself, you can do info at the hivejive.com. You can message us on Facebook or info in bip, bip, I was gonna say infogram. Oh my god. Ooh. Facebook <laughs> or Instagram at the hive jive. And then you can also reach out to Natalie at be mindful. And I will let you give the specifics on those there. So you can reach us directly on the website through the contact form at b-mindful.com. Or you can email me directly, email Les and I directly at bemindfulhoneyfarms at gmail.com. And then um, for those of you who want the contact information, if you want to text us and ask us questions is there, but I'm not going to give it on the podcast. <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> before I digress <laughs> off onto something else, thank you all for tuning in for another little beekeeper chat with here with Natalie and I, and hopefully this bee centric conversation has given you some things to think about in your own beekeeping practices. And even if it's just slight, minute little changes that you might want to implement and see how they do, or maybe just paying more attention to the colony and trying to lead, you know, let them lead by example. And you follow that example, you know, any of these types of things, even the smallest little adjustments can actually have big beneficial impacts on your beekeeping. So definitely try them out. If you have questions, uh, rewind this and uh, get that information on where you can send those questions to shoot it over. We'll be more than happy to talk about it and do anything like that. We also do have the ability, this is off of Patreon itself, but we do have the ability of doing live broadcasts still where we can have oh, everybody yeah. call in and listen and do questions that way. And for those of you here on Patreon, you know what? It's not exactly beyond the realm of possibility that we could also do a live Zoom with all of you as well Ooh, that and would be let nice. you log in and physically talk to us and see us instead of just hearing the audio version of it. 
and uh, we can do a chat that way as well. And just one last little side note on there too. You guys have heard this many, many times, but Natalie and Les do the chat with a mindful beekeeper on Thursdays and you can find that on their social media and you can see them and you can type messages to them and they go through and they talk mm -hmm. about those different questions that come up. So that's always a very interesting way to learn, um, mainly yeah, because you never know what individual is going to ask something. Right. And it may be something you've always been curious about or something you would have never thought about, but ends up being very good information. So questions are always welcome regardless. Yeah. And you can watch some of our previous recordings on Instagram at Be Mindful Honey Farms. And then you can get a link to the Zoom if you prefer to join us on Zoom. So Zoom. Zoom, zoom, zoom. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, well, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in. I don't even know what I actually said there. It didn't sound right. Uh, yeah, at that note, I, I think I need to go take a nap or go to you bed to go or get something. Some rest. So yes. everybody be good. <laughs> be mindful. Be, be centric. Be, 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 be. Bye, bye. <laughs> bye, guys. Bye, John. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you, and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees.